Well, coming up at the end of this month, today's, you know, it's October now, and at the end of this month, there's going to be a holiday that most of you might know. Some of you might know, some of you might. Um, it's not Halloween, it's called Reformation Day. All right, so um, on October 31st, um, back in the 1500s, a guy named Martin Luther, uh, you might not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, whom he's named after, nailed a, a list of arguments to the cathedral door um, in Wittenberg uh, to say, hey, I think that things should be different. And from that point on, we mark that as the beginning of the Reformation. Um, this church that exists right here is called a Protestant church, or if you say it with a different emphasis, it's a Protestant church, meaning that our church um, is, is from a, descended from a line of churches who are protesting against the Catholic church. All right? That doesn't mean that we don't have, uh, the Catholics are not our friends, they're, they're our friends, they stand for a lot of the same things we do. But there was one particular thing that Martin Luther and all of us since have felt like we need to protest or be Protestant against. And that is how somebody goes from being dead in their sins to being alive in Christ. How does somebody go from being lost to being found? How does somebody go from not being alive to being born again? Another way to say it, how does somebody become a Christian? How does somebody get saved? And that was a debate. See, on the Catholic side of things, they said that there needed to be um, some works done in order that someone might be saved. And the reformers, they saw verses like what we're going to see here today. They said, no, it's not works that save us. We actually don't need works. It's all by grace. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to kind of continue the debate, if you will, or continue to discuss it. But to see what is it, how is it that some person goes from being dead in their sins to being alive in Christ? And this is an important thing for us because just like, as we feel, the Catholic Church got off track at that moment, we can still do the same thing in our lives, friends. Um, no matter how long we have been Christians and no, no matter how long we have been trusting in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, we still have a tendency to add something else into the equation. It's Jesus plus belief equals salvation. If we have Jesus plus works, that will not equal salvation. So that's why we need to continue to come back to this passage. I, some of you can remember, this is the third time I've actually preached this passage at this church, um, I believe, at least the second. Um, but it's a great passage, and it's always something for us to glean from every time we walk through it. So let me read this passage to you, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're going to see how we were dead in our sin until God acted to raise us from our spiritual deadness through Christ. So let's read. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And you raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, at the coming age, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Probably every preacher who's ever preached this uh, has had the same three points. I'm going to give them to you. We were dead in our sins, we're alive in Christ, and we're created for good works. That's, that's the outline of probably every preacher who's ever preached this passage. So let's start with that number one. You were dead in your sins. And as we roll into this passage, notice what this passage starts with, the word that it starts with. It starts with and. That's kind of an odd uh, word to start a conversation with. You, you don't just walk up to somebody and say, and you also, you, know, you, don't, you don't do that. Because and is a connecting word. It's not a beginning word. So what is Paul connecting? What's the idea he's connecting? Well, our sermon from last week talked about um, how Paul was praying that we would know what Christ has done for us, how salvation works, that we would know how it works. And he talked about how we, just like Jesus, were dead and we have been raised. So he said, and the power that worked in Christ when God raised him from the dead and did all these other things. And now he's kind of finishing that conversation saying, and you were also dead. Christ died for your sins and you were also dead for your sins. But just as God raised him up, God plans to raise us up as well. And so when he says this, when you were dead in your sins, what is Paul talking about? How is it that we are dead? Because Paul also says in the same phrase, uh, you were dead in your sins in which you once walked. So there's like this zombie-like thing going on. There's a bunch of dead people walking around, living, living dead people. Um, back in the day, um, when there would be like a, um, a death sentence, if somebody were in the jail and death sentence, it would be popular for people to chant or say, dead man walking, as that man who had a, a death sentence um, would walk through the jail. Dead man walking, dead man walking. You see that in the Green Mile if you've seen that movie. The idea is that this person is dead, and in a real sense, this person is already dead. And in the same way, that applies to us before Christ. We're dead in our sins, up, walking, eyes uh, open. We're walking, yet we're as good as dead spiritually. Paul means here that we're not dead physically, but we're dead spiritually. Um, you guys heard the word literally? That is a really popular word in our uh, just vernacular right now. We use it when we do not need to use it most of the time. Um, but a lot of times we talk about, should we read the Bible literally or figuratively? And I hate that question because that implies that if you're not speaking literally, you're not speaking reality. So in this passage, I don't want to say, I'm saying Paul is saying that we are literally dead, but he's not talking physically He's talking spiritually. You are literally dead spiritually or, or, or really dead spiritually. Spiritually because sin is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual act. I talked with Whitney. Um, 
really, there's nothing in this world that in and of itself, physical act is, is a sin. It's all about the heart behind the action, whether it's words or actions or deeds, whatever it is. It's really the heart behind the action that makes it a sin because sin is a spiritual thing. And that's why Paul refers to us as being spiritually dead. So what's a spiritually dead person look like? Well, number one, it says that they're following the course of this world. That's what it says in verse two, following the course of this world. This world has its definitions of right and wrong, good and bad. And most of the time, what the world would deem good and right is what the Lord would not deem good and right. The world usually determines what's right and wrong by, does it get me more money? Does it give me more power? Or does it give me more pleasure? And if it gives you one of those three things, then it's the right thing to do. It's, it's the, the acceptable action to take. But that's not how the Lord would have us act. The, the, so when we're dead in our sins, when we were dead in our sins, we were influenced living in this world, following the way that it goes, following the world. And second, following Satan. Verse two also says that we are following the prince of the power of the air. That's just a fancy way of saying saying Satan. Um, as strange as it sounds, uh, it's just referring to the evil one, Satan. He's like a prince in that he has power, but not ultimate power. And it says that he exercises his power in the air um, around us, but that's just another way of saying in the world. Um, there's other passages in the Bible that say that he's the ruler of this world um, with the idea that there's the Lord's kingdom and then there's this kingdom that we exist in now. But all that to say is that not only were we following the world, but we were following the one who is influencing the world, Satan. It says that we, the, they were sons of disobedience. Um, that means people just acting like their father, acting like their father, the deceiver, the, the father of lies. The Bible speaks of Satan as the father of lies. And this is what he's been doing for millennia. From the very beginning, he's been tricking us, deceiving us, lying to us, um, influencing us to rebel against the Lord. From the very first time we see him introduced in the Bible, he's deceiving Eve to eat the apple and deceiving, uh, encouraging her to, to, to have her husband follow the same way. So somebody who's dead in their sins is following the patterns of this world that's set for them. They're also following the way Satan would have them live. But scariest and, and maybe the, mo- the biggest reality check is this. You're following yourself. Do you notice that's where it ends? It says you're following the world, you're following Satan. And verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. While Satan and this world may have an influence on humans, ultimately, humans sin because humans want to sin. It's very common for us to see sin as, uh, uh, to see us as victims of sin, something that's happened to us. But to be sure, sin is not something outside of us that we go to. It's something inside of us that comes out of us. Maybe that's influenced by the world. Maybe that's influenced by Satan. But ultimately, when you get down to it, people sin because people want to sin. They're carrying out the desires of their flesh, the the, the desires of their mind. And he goes on to say, this is like everybody, including himself. He's saying, we, 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 we all did this like the rest of mankind. This is about as, as 
a, a, this is a big blanket statement. It, he's saying this about every single person. And we might say like, man, how is it that I can be in the same category as somebody like Hitler or Mussolini or these, these, these dictator, di- dictators that took so many lives? How is it that we can be in the same category as them? Well, I think it's because Paul, when he's saying this, he's not speaking quantitatively or qualitatively. He's speaking categorically. Here's what I mean by that. He's not saying that the sins that you commit are at the same level as the sins of, of, of a um, Hitler. He's not saying the same quality of sin happens, but he is saying it's the same category. You're put into the same category of sinner. He's not speaking about the fruit of our sin. He's talking about the root of our sin, which is a rebellious heart. Think of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, some of you think you're doing good. I'm paraphrasing how he says it. Some of y'all think you're doing good because you ain't never killed anybody. But have you ever insulted your brother? Have you ever spoken an evil word against him? Well, that's the same heart. The same heart that results in murder also is the same heart that results in insulting people and tearing people down. You just didn't get the chance to take it all the way. Something restrained you, probably the grace of God. He also says, hey, you think you're good because you're not cheating on your wife, but have you looked at a woman lustfully? Same heart, same heart. And that is how Paul can say this about all of us. All y'all were dead in your sins, following Satan, following the ways of this world, following yourself. We're in the same category. James says, if you break one law, you break all of them. In the sense that you are now in the category of lawbreaker. You're now in the category of lawbreaker. Really, this is talking about the doctrine of total depravity. You Maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't. It's just the idea that, in some sense, sin has more effect on us than we even give it credit for. It's not just impacted us in the sense that we deserve judgment for it, but it impacts our, our character, the way that we, the, that we live. Most importantly, it impacts our will. Our will, our desire. One person said it messes up our wanter, meaning that sin affects our wanter in that we don't even want the Lord. We don't want him. And you can think of it this way. There's a lot of examples that are maybe used of, of salvation. One example might be this. You are, um, you're in the ocean. You are, you're drowning. A boat comes by. And you're calling out for it. Say, hey, I need help. They throw you the life preserver and they pull you in. Maybe that's one picture of salvation. Maybe another picture is this, that you were, you were drowning and you'd gone under and uh, somebody noticed, so they pulled you up and they did CPR to you to bring you, to resuscitate you. Well, I think the more accurate picture that I think this is picturing is this. You'd been dead at the bottom of the ocean, lifeless, and God came along and pulled you up and didn't resuscitate you, but resurrected you. See, salvation is not... Um, just like you were drowning and you needed saving. It's not that you'd passed out and needed resuscitation. You were dead and you needed resurrection. Nothing in you wanted the Lord. It's not like you were stumbling through life and you're like, oh, I found the Lord. I was looking for him. No, that's not how it was. You were dead in your sins at the bottom of the ocean. The Lord raised you up. And I think this is important for us to read passages like this, especially for somebody like me. Um, if I'm if I'm honest and I think look back at my life, 
I came to know the Lord at a young age. I was nine uh, through vacation Bible school. It was in this room right here where I talked to Brother Phil. Um, some of you might remember Phil, Phil Crosby, Annette's husband. Um, he led me through um, the Roman road. I, I trusted in Christ as a nine-year-old. But if I'm honest, my um, most sinful time in my life, in one sense, was after I was a Christian. Because before I was a Christian, I was nine. I, I, for sure I had sinned. For sure I had rebelled against God, my parents. I, I had a rebellious heart. But if I want to start looking for like good and bad sins, they probably happened after I was a Christian. Uh, my worst sins came after that. Um, so as I'm thinking about me, and I'm reading this passage saying, like, you were dead in your sins, but then you were made alive in Christ. My, my before, I didn't have what the world standard would say, bad sins, right? So it's important for us to read this, to, for me to realize as I read through this, this is a picture of me. Even though I didn't realize it, even though my sinful heart had not had the chance to actualize serious sin, it was the same heart that was in me. It was the same heart that was in me. Maybe some of you relate to that too. Or maybe you look back at your life before you were a Christian, and you're like, maybe you were younger than I was when you became a Christian. You think, well, my, my before was not really that bad. Like, what was I really saved from? You were saved from the same thing that everybody else is saved from, the fact that you were dead in your sins. I mean, if you think of somebody who might have cancer, if they were saved from cancer when they had it at stage one or stage four, it's still a miracle, right? It's still an amazing thing that happened. Regardless of how much that cancer had developed in them, it would still be a miracle. In the same way, someone who's saved at a young age, we're still, we're still saved from that seriousness of sin. And we need to really be thankful that this passage doesn't stop at verse four, or uh, verse, um, yeah, verse three. We need to be thankful it doesn't stop at verse three, because if it stopped at verse three, we're dead in our sins, like the rest of mankind, children's of wrath, children of wrath. Like this is not good news. But praise God, there is good news. So we were one dead in our sins, but now we are two alive in Christ. We are alive in Christ. We need to realize that had God not intervened in our life, we would still be dead in our sins. If God had not intervened in history and then intervened in your life individually, you still would be dead in your sins. You'd still be laying at the bottom of the ocean. But these two great words that come along right here, but God, change everything. That, that small syllable, those three little letters, but... It's a, it's, a, it's a conjunction that says everything that was just said is now different because what's about to be said. That's an amazing thing. And we come along and we see how depraved we are, but God, but God, he made us alive. And notice when that happened. It says, but God, or but God being uh, rich in mercy because he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. That's a good, that timing is really good. Notice it doesn't say you were dead in your sins until you got fixed and came to the Lord. Then you made your life. No, it says you were dead in your sins. And that's when he came to you. Even when we were dead in our sins, he raised us with him. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. Notice all of the 
with him, with him that you see. We were made alive with him. We were raised with him. We were seated with him. Your salvation is a result of you being with and in Christ. Some people say that the, that, that, that the simplest, most succinct way to describe a Christian is to say, in Christ. In Christ. That they are united with him in all of the goodness that's happened to him. You're made alive with him. You're beating, uh, your spiritual heart became beating because of what Christ had done. You were raised with him from the dead. And even now you're seated with him. The doctrine of being united with Christ. What that means is that everything that has happened to Christ, therefore happens to you because you are in him. I mean, imagine this. I mean, I'm sure all of us have used Amazon at some point. And we've ordered a package from, from someplace. Um, if we got that package and what we ordered was not in there, I mean, it was just an empty box, wouldn't we be like, we would be, that would really catch us off guard. I don't know if it, that's happened to anybody before. Have you got an empty Amazon box? No, maybe you didn't get what you ordered. That probably has happened. But surely you've never gotten a box where the guy was like, duh, bro, I forgot to put those socks in there. I meant to send them, but I forgot. That's probably never happened to you, right? Because that, that, item that you've ordered is in the box and anything that happens to that box whether it goes um whether it goes from new york to sydney to wherever it goes whatever happens to that box also happens to what's in the box okay and in the same way whatever happens to christ happens to us those spiritual blessings that god has blessed us with in christ meaning he, he raised him from the dead that's also happened to us. We've been raised from the dead. He's seated with him in the heavenly places. We are also seated with him in the heavenly places. An interesting way that he uses the tenses, right? He says that we have been seated with him. I think that's to make the point. that Paul confuses those um, tenses for us to let us see this. As sure as your salvation in Christ has been, you've been raised spiritually from the dead in the past, that's how sure it is that you will spend eternity with him in the future. You can consider it already done. Having been raised from death to life and having been seated, like it's already a done deal. It's as secure as it would be um, for anything. And notice the reason why he brought us to life. It says because of his love, because of his love to show his grace and kindness to us. Again, like I said in the beginning, we are too often tempted to think that God loves us because of something that we have done or something we should be doing. But what motivated God to, to raise us to life? You could ask, what made him get up off of his chair and do something? It wasn't something in us. It's not something in you. It was because of his love that he got up to do something. His love compelled him. And you know why that's a really good thing? Because we have a God who's immutable. That's just another way of saying unchangeable. He does not change. His love cannot change for you. And so the fact that his love is what motivates him to save us in the past is the same love that's still motivating him to be committed to that now. 
to think about this. Jesus loves you in this moment just as much as when he sent his son to die on the cross. The greatest display of his love in history, that moment when Jesus died on the cross, his love for you has not faded away from that moment. It's the same at that moment, in this moment, as it has always been because of his love. And it was to show his grace. In one sense, God is saving you in order to show off, to show off the the riches of his grace and kindness toward us in the coming ages. Uh, When Jesus returns to judge the world, there's going to be a kindness and a grace that's given to us as those who are in Christ, and it's going to be a display of his glory, the riches of his glory, it says, um, to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's showing off by saving us. He's just showing how powerful he is by raising you from the dead. And for some of us, maybe that was uh, even more of an impressive thing to save you, right? Maybe you're looking like, man, um, it was one thing to save the, the, the nice kid over here, but to save me, it took a lot of effort. Um, so maybe the Lord shows off for some of us more. I don't think that's true, but maybe he does. But all that to say, when we are saved, when we're made alive together with Christ, it's because we've been united with him in a death like his that we might be united with him in a resurrection like his, and we are given new life. And that's not because of anything that we've done. There's nothing we can do to change that love because he was compelled to love us because of himself. His love compelled him to do those things. So we were dead in our sins. Now we've been made alive together with Christ. And finally, you were created for good works. That last verse says this, for we are God's workmanship. Oh, I didn't even talk about verse 8 and 9. I'm sorry. Uh, notice that he, he's, he's made us alive together with Christ, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, that he might show his stuff. Because we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone. This is that, mo- that, that passage that we talked about memorizing. This is a passage that we talked about changed Martin Luther's perspective. This idea that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And why are we saved by grace through faith? Grace is the idea of a gift. You don't earn a gift. None of you got a Christmas present and tried to pay your parents back, right? It's a gift given to you out of grace. Why are we saved by grace? And not of works, it's so that none of us can boast. None of us in this room can look at anybody else and say, hey, I did a little bit more than so-and-so to get into heaven. Uh, I was a little bit better in life than them. No, this verse is the great equalizer to say, none of us did anything to earn God's love and salvation. It's all because of grace given to you because he wanted to give it to you, not because you earned it. And it's given to us through faith. And when it says uh, it's by grace through faith, and this is not a, res- uh, not a result of works so that no one can boast, it's a gift. That's referring to not just the grace that's shown to us, but also to the faith that's given to us. Um, it's referring to that whole idea, that whole concept of salvation by grace through faith alone. That, that thing, that is the gift. So the fact that you believe in Jesus is even a gift. That's been given to you. Because remember, you were dead. And had God not given you the faith to believe, you still wouldn't believe. So by grace, you've been saved through faith. But third, not not only were you dead in your sins, alive in Christ, but created for good works. This this passage is bookended with 
or with the with the word walk, right? It says uh, you were once dead in your sins, walking in them. Now you walk in good works, creating Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That idea of walking is just that that's the pattern of your life. So these good works that we've been created for were planned for us beforehand. Sometimes I think we get we get caught up in, man, I, I'm thankful that I'm saved, but how is it that I can live this, this life uh, of a Christian? How can I serve? How can I make an impact um, in my church or in my community? Well, it's because God planned those things before you were born that you would do good works. Um, just as much as you were saved as a result of him working in your life, you do good works as a result of him working in your life. Good works are the result of God loving you, not the reason for God loving you. They're the result of God loving you. And so as sure as his love is for you and his salvation of you, so are your good works for him. He has saved you and now works through you that you might show good works. And that, that idea um, that it says there, for we are his workmanship, um, it's the idea of a hand, uh, handcrafted personal creation. It's where we get the word for poem, the, the Greek word's poema. It's where we get the word for poem, something beautiful that's created by somebody uh, in order to show their character. So as you walk around, as you leave here today, remember, you're a masterpiece that God has created, um, fashioned with his own hands, and his fingerprints are on you. You're his creation, that you might look like him, that you might reflect his image, that you would do these good works to display his character. And in order to remind us of, of this passage, that we were dead and we've been raised to life, and that we not forget that, I want to encourage you um, to memorize that Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Um, it's maybe something you already have memorized, but um, if, you have, if you didn't grab a, a uh, pamphlet this morning, grab one because it'll have the verse in there for the scripture reading. Go home and memorize that verse um, and hide it deep within your heart. That you would remember, it's by grace that I've been saved. Not a result of anything I've done. Only because of what God has done. And not a result of works so that I can't boast in my salvation. Because we need to remember that this grace is given to us solely because of what God has done for us. Not because of what we've done. And as we transition from this beautiful passage of Ephesians 1-2 to 2, to think of what we're about to do um, is take the Lord's Supper together. Um, to, to take this family meal together, which is a picture. Um, both baptism and the Lord's Supper are picture symbols of what has happened to us, going from death to life. And as we take this meal, we're supposed to remember what exactly it was that brought us to life. That Jesus' body was given for us and broken. That his blood was shed for us. That his veins were open in order to pour out that life-giving blood that brings life to you that raises you from the dead. So as we take this meal, I want to encourage you to remember that, um, to think on it um, and allow it to remind you of what Christ has done for us. Um, I often refer to this, this meal as a family meal. And what I mean by that is um, Christ gave this meal um, to Christians, to those who had turned from their sins and trusted in Christ and gone on the, under the waters of baptism to make that public. So I encourage you this morning, if you are here and you are a believer in Christ, you are free to take this meal um, and participate because you're a part of the body of Christ. If you're here this morning and you're like, I don't know that I'm a Christian, um, I've never turned from my sins, I've never trusted in Jesus, I would encourage you to not take this meal. Not because I don't want you to take this meal, 
but because this has been given to us and it, let it be an encouragement to, for you to be a part of that um, in the future. Um, so as we close, let me pray for us. This and Lord are going to come and we're going to sing a song um, in response that will help us to remember and think through the communion. Uh, and then we'll, we'll take this meal together. Father, we come before you and thank you so much for everything you've done for us.